Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown and hoping you are finding time to relish the sunshine and enjoy summer. I think in the course of the work that we do, we are really focused on the kids and meeting their needs. And that takes up a lot of time and energy trying to get it right. One of the things that we may forget is listening to the voices of our parents because they are the experts on their child and know best what they need. My guest today is a parent whom I've known for quite some time, and I so appreciate her willingness to join us today. Natasha Robinson is a 35-year-old single mother from Kalamazoo who spends her days hanging with her 11-year-old son. She currently runs her own communications business and works part-time as a secretary. Her favorite job, however, is being a mom to Isaiah. Natasha has worked as a news reporter, substitute teacher, community health worker, and social worker in Michigan and North Carolina. She is a BA in journalism from Wayne State University and an MS in psychology from the University of Phoenix. Natasha's personal mission is to help connect communities to the information and resources they need. She recently completed the Parents Partnering for Change training to help toward that end. You can keep up with her and Isaiah's adventures on TikTok at Watch Zay Play, and she can also be reached by email, and I will share that all in the show notes. So sit back and take a listen. Hey, Natasha, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm good. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate this opportunity. I think it's important that we hear from parents because that's the population, that's who we serve. So I'm really grateful for you to make time to to have this conversation today. Definitely. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, well, we'll just dive right in. So you've been such an advocate for your son, Isaiah, but it's been a long journey since he was born. And so, you know, I wanted to start with talking a little bit about who you are and then some of that early journey for you. Okay, so I'm 35. I've been born and raised. Well, I wasn't born in Kalamazoo, but I've been raised in Kalamazoo, so I've been here pretty much all my life, except in adulthood. In 2010, I found myself pregnant after being in an unhealthy relationship, and I ended up having Isaiah. I utilized Nurse Family Partnership early on, which was a really cool program that I was connected to through social work at Bronson Women's Services, and they worked with me until he was almost two years old, which was really great because they helped with like learning to breastfeed and learning about labor and delivery and all those really cool things. Yeah, but I've been a single parent, graduated from Wayne State with a degree in journalism. So before I had Isaiah, I worked as a news reporter for a little while before the industry kind of shifted and changed a little bit. 
And at the point that I got pregnant, I was working as a substitute teacher for Kalamazoo Public Schools and just trying to figure out where I wanted to land in my career as things were shifting. So that's a little bit of background as I entered motherhood. Yeah. And then, so, so you have this baby. I'm so delighted that you were able to use family nurse partners. And I think that's something, you know, that clinicians are hoping continues and is expanded because I think it can be really supportive to moms. I mean, I know, I wish I'd had something like that, you know, just because I'm a pediatrician doesn't mean that I knew anything about being a mother. You know, that was a, that was trial by fire. So, you know, honestly, man, I wish I'd had somebody ride that ride with me. So, so you have this beautiful baby and things are going along. When did things start to be a difficult or a concern for you? So I always felt like Isaiah was a little bit of a spicy baby. He was a little bit temperamental. That was one thing I learned in family, doing nurse family partnership. There were graphics about, you know, calm babies, temperamental babies, different things like that. And he fell more on the temperamental side. So little things would upset him even as an infant. But when he got to about 18 months old and he started getting kicked out of daycares for having troubles with following boundaries, staying in the boundaries, some unsafe behaviors with like biting other kids. And there was no like medical reason for him to have some of those behaviors that made me go a little bit deeper and actually take him into MSU psychology at that point because we were living in Lansing. So our first step was to they basically rule out was there a medical condition and medical problem. So, you know, they got his ears checked, got his eyes checked, got his hearing checked, just to make sure there were no issues that came up with that. And then the providers there said, maybe check in with the psychology folks at MSU. So, so we did. And at that point, the psychiatrist said, you know, he's really young for like anything other than the pervasive developmental delay, but it wasn't a really specific diagnosis. So at that point, we engaged with the community mental health in Eaton County. And got a a home visitor from that program. And she started working with me on sensory play and things like that to help try to support him when he's having, you know, the aggressive behavior and things like that. So what I'm hearing you say is you were pretty savvy to be able to, you know, navigate the system, you know, from an early stage. I mean, you're a young mama at that time. And, you know, to know how to do that. And so you had lots of resources early on, but it wasn't enough. And so it kind of kept being difficult. Did some of those things help? I mean, those interventions, were they supportive to you? So I think each intervention had its own way of supporting me. But none of them alone would have been enough or have been enough. And that's the problem I'm still running into (laughs) present day is that we've got different interventions, but it's still not enough to really help comprehensively. But I mean, going back, the CMH person who came in and helped link us to Project Find, which helped 
get him into early childhood special education. So he was able to go to preschool right around age three because he was able to go through special education. But even at that point, it was a fight because at Project Find, when they took him through the four rooms of testing, he passed the test. Like he wasn't having an issue. He could talk, he could walk, he, you know, he was hitting his milestones. And so there were no extremely obvious things that came up in the hour or so. And I'm like, hey, no, there's more to this. Like there are some really extreme behaviors that are happening that I don't see with, you know, I haven't seen with other kids when I've been a babysitter or, you know, just in living and existing and knowing how kids do things. (laughs) So at this point, he's three going on four. You've accessed lots of things and some helpful, but it's not enough. And at this point, he's hearing a diagnosis of PDNOS, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, which basically means not really clear, but something's up. Any other diagnoses he was carrying at that point? So through his IEP, they just categorized him under like a global developmental delay. And at that point, the sensory processing disorder started to come into play also. And after he finished in Lansing at that first school year, we ended up moving back to Kalamazoo so that way I could have more support from family. And so then we found some providers here in Kalamazoo who worked with us. And um, he ended up with the diagnosis of ADHD in addition to the global developmental delay. And not too long after he turned four, we did start some medication trials because doing occupational therapy and the home visiting service wasn't enough to really help get us through the day safely and have him understand, I guess, where he needed to be. Yeah. I wanted to circle back to something that you said, because I think it's really important for providers to hear this. And that is, he is a really smart kid. And because of that, he sort of flew through the evaluations. It's interesting that he has a global developmental delay diagnosis, but he doesn't have gross motor delays. He doesn't have fine motor delays or speech, but something's going on. He has kind of emotional regulation kind of an issue at this point. And you mentioned before, too, that he had an MCHAT screen and there were no red flags. But in your head, there's like major red flags. You're like, something's up. So what do we need as clinicians to do differently to hear your parent intuition? Because you kept feeling like this, there is something else. So one of the things that I had to end up doing was pushing for more time in front of the providers because in the short interactions, you wouldn't necessarily pick up on the emotional dysregulation as a huge feature. You wouldn't push up or pick up on how specific he was, how rigid he was in needing things to be a certain way. And all of those things combined, you know, really make up the brunt of his frustrations and pull together that autism diagnosis where it is. And it took me actually having to leave Kalamazoo 
and go to Duke and UNC and participate in studies and then go to UNC and get the medical diagnosis confirmed to have them say, yep, he's on the spectrum. And how old was he when that diagnosis was made? He was five and a half. That was Mm -hmm. in 2016. And so, of course, we know now, and hopefully we do better, is that early intervention specifically for autism makes a huge difference. Now, you were getting some services, OT and some sensory work, but without that diagnosis, you can't access autism services. So those diagnoses kind of overshadowed kind of the underlying core diagnosis. Do, Do I have that right? You have it exactly right. And that was a lot of my frustration when he was younger was it's like we we had everything to dance around the diagnosis of autism, but nothing that unlocked the door to the autism services. And that's what made me make such a drastic choice to leave my family, to leave my friends and to go find help. Yeah. And you were down in North Carolina for how long then? We lived down in North Carolina from 2016 to 2018. So here now he's seven and a half and you come back to Kalamazoo because you're really needing more family support. You're needing help at this point because even with this diagnosis, he's still struggling. And then began ABA services, which got to be pretty intensive in my memory. And then there were medications. And I know he's seen, I mean, in addition to seeing me and other pediatricians, he's also seen several psychiatrists. And that's always hard because, you know, psychiatry is, it's not a hard science. It's not like you have strep throat and you get penicillin or amoxicillin. When you have emotional dysregulation, it's trial and error, which is really hard. So, I I know from knowing you for so long, he's been through many medications, some of them with pretty serious side effects to try and find that sweet spot where he can do what he needs to do. What's the medication journey been like? Hard. Yeah. The medication journey is hard. And one thing I will say is, first off, like nobody forced that choice on me. I think it was something that I felt like was sort of necessary to try for him, for his safety and for his wellness, because he was literally in a position where he couldn't sit still. So <laughs> between the ADHD and then the dysregulation, when somebody would tell him something, it made it hard for him to be included in just regular kid stuff. And that can't feel good as a child. So I wanted him to you want him to be successful and happy and engage and that's been hard. I'm sorry. I know this is a hard conversation. I'm so grateful to you. That's okay. Take a minute. Take a minute. While you're thinking about that, I just wanted to say a couple of things. One is you are incredibly gracious to say I'm willing to accept that this is not an easy and I'll just I'm willing to try different things because I want the best for my son. And you have always been, I mean, I haven't encountered you being angry. I'm sure frustrated. And I know there have been some times we've met in the emergency room where, man, that was really hard. And we were both frustrated with the roadblocks of the system. 
But, you know, you've always been so gracious about accepting the flaws in medicine and the system. And I know that's incredibly hard. Uh, and yeah, it is hard. It's definitely hard. And the fact of knowing that there are medicines that can help and hurt <laughs> all at the same time. And you don't know. Out, you really don't know until you take it. Or sometimes you have to take it for weeks at a time. Like, it, you know, it is hard. And so, I mean, each time I would have to do my own research, I would go back to message boards, you know, online and see what other families had experience with those things. And I just, I wouldn't jump, you know, to just push things on him. And I would check in with him and ask him how he was feeling. And if things looked different or if he didn't seem like himself, it would be like, nope, this doesn't fit. If he gained too much weight, <laughs> nope, this isn't a good fit, you know. And he had a pretty serious side effect. I remember at one yeah. point he was prescribed Haldol and he had a horrible reaction. It required yeah, he, a hospitalization. He was in, given an injection. Actually, it was at the hospital. He had an episode. We were at Target and he had a hard time coming out of the store. We called Mobile Crisis, tried to work with them to come support him through how he was feeling. And I mean, it escalated to a point where, you know, we ended up having to go to the hospital. And one of the hard parts about the hospital is when there's extreme agitation and things like that, like you don't necessarily get to do all of the research about what they're what they're using PR in. And so, you know, I don't know really one way or the other if I would have made a different choice in that moment, but their choice was to use Haldol. And for some reason, his body did not like the Haldol and it caused him to have a dystonic reaction. And so like by the next morning, it was just, it was really scary. And he was in the hospital for several days after that. That's made me even more like weary about you know, med changes and PRM meds and things like that. We did do the DNA swab to try to see what meds may work better with his metabolism and everything. So I think that's helped a little bit, but there hasn't been a magic bullet though. There's not been a magic no. regimen. I, and, you know, again, your patience for doing and your incredible diligence about investigating. And I'm hoping as I'm sitting here listening to you, it's like, mm, you're not too young. Go to medical school. <laughs> I only need oh, people, you. <laughs> people like you. So this is hard stuff. And I mean, you've mentioned, you know, several things, emergency room visits, and there have been many because he also has migraine headaches. And that's hard because the emergency room setting, I mean, we don't have a PCR. It's really not suited to somebody who's in intense pain and has emotional dysregulation and can have agitation. So he gets some pretty heavy duty medication and you and I've talked about maybe there's some ways to have better communication to help have a plan. So when he arrives in the emergency room, they can, you know, go, you know, here's Isaiah's plan. This is what we need to do to get him relief from his headaches and to help him be calm and not be scared. I'm sure the emergency room is scary for him. I mean, it's, yeah, it is. I mean, once you get to a certain point, 
he's happy with the Zesta crackers and, you know, a little seven up. But for the most part, it's very, it's a hard environment because people are coming in. There's all kinds of noises. You know, there's no private room that's soundproof for you to get the care that you need. So it can be overstimulating for him. And then, I mean, you say the word poke or shot and he just loses it. So, yeah. And some of the medications for agitation are given by injection. They are. So, so what's the pandemic been like for you guys? Because a lot of kids I know that had special needs weren't able to access all the services that they had prior to the pandemic. So things are hard for him already, but sometimes he would function okay at school because he likes school. And if you could get it just right, he, he, you know, Many days he could function, not all days. But what happened with the pandemic? Because the schools were, I mean, you were. Yeah. When the schools closed, it was very abrupt. And that was an extremely hard transition because, you know, one thing about me is I have to do a lot of prep work with him. So like if we're planning a trip or if we're going to the doctor or something like that, like I usually like some bleed time so that I can explain to him what's going to happen and he can have it in his mind what's going to happen. There was none of this with the pandemic. It was just like, you're at school on Friday, can't come back on Monday, everything's closed down. And, And then just trying to figure out, well, what does virtual actually look like? And he was very resistant to participating virtually. He he just said he wasn't going to do school until he could go back to the school building. And so it was very hard. And and that was at most of, of that was most of fall of twenty well, spring and summer, fall of twenty. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all of twenty one. Yeah. I mean they maybe went back in the fall of twenty one. Do I have that right? Yep. So it was the second half of his third grade year and all of his fourth grade year was virtual. Yeah. So it was very difficult because he was very used to that routine of going to school, seeing his friends. He does like to be social and he likes the routine of being in the school building and going to recess and all those things. And so that was very hard for him. And also at that point in time, because he struggled with being out in public without kind of having outbursts and things like that, I had already kind of stopped taking him to the grocery store with me and stopped doing some of those things because every time I did, it it sort of led to a big escalation and then it made it really impossible to get things done. So even before the pandemic, I was using Walmart grocery delivery and I was ordering from Amazon. And a lot of the things that people started doing after the pandemic to to limit contact, I was already there. We were in the house. <laughs> so And it sounds um, like and it sounds like from what you told me when we were talking earlier before the recording, you're still in the house a lot. He does go to school, but he's in yeah. the house a lot. And it, it sounds like too the way the system is set up, because I'm thinking about you. I mean, how hard this is a, a single mom having to be on all the time. That respite would be helpful, but the respite only covers respite services using family. And he's a challenge for family. They're not trained professionals. 
So that's a right. big, that's a big, it is a big call. And so the respite funds here in Kalamazoo, they allow you to find someone and it can be a community member. It could be a relative as long as they pass the background check through CMA or ISK. And you can use those funds to pay them and they give you a certain allotment every six months and then it renews. But it is a challenge to find someone who is willing to do a few hours because, I mean, it's never really a super substantial amount. Hours right now is about 1700 every six months. And I can pay somebody up to 1575 out of that. So in the grand scheme of things, if somebody wants it as a supplemental income, you know, it could be a good opportunity, but it's not a lot. And considering what you might put your body through or you know, what you might put at risk for if he is escalated at a certain point, it can be off-putting. And I'm wondering for you, I mean, I, I mean, bless your heart, you need a break. And I'm wondering though, when you're on that break, are you always thinking, I hope it's okay at home? I mean, are you really, can you really put down your burden? No, I never really do. I don't mean to say that he's a burden, but I mean the hardness of caring this because it is hard. I want to switch and talk about the joy that Isaiah is because he's funny. He is smart. He did this cool thing where he grew a butterfly and you put it on online and we could watch it. I loved it. So tell me about the joys of your son. So one thing about Isaiah is most days he wakes up, he's hyper, he's bouncy, like he is the sunshine, you know? And it's a really beautiful thing. Like he he usually does start fresh, you know, each day. He does like life-giving activities. And so that's something I strive to never take away from him. He's really into Pokemon. He draws his own characters and comes up with them in addition to the ones that are already you know, out there, he started drawing his own comics and writing little short stories. He started using like things like Alexa to find out what the jokes are for the day <laughs> and things like that. And he's developing his sense of humor, which is like a really big deal for somebody, I think, on the spectrum because, you know, understanding idioms and satire and things that are just not black and white can be a really hard thing. So for him to do jokes, is just, it's hilarious, you know? But he, I mean, he's a character all the way around. He likes to do little dances on TikTok that he makes up. We recently colored his hair a half and half where like part of it is a little burgundy red and then the other half is just the normal dark brown color. So, I mean, he's just got his own sense of style. Half the school year, he was showing up in hats and sunglasses and that was like, his trademark, you know? So yeah, I mean, he's his own character. He's full of life. And I think for the most part, people love being around him when he's in a great mood. Yeah. I just think about the visits in the office and I mean, he's really funny and he loved showing me his videos of the chrysalis and how it was, you know, emerging and how he watched it every day. I mean, he was so attentive to this mm-hmm. little creature and it was a beautiful thing and he's a mm-hmm. beautiful he's a beautiful boy and i know that you want everything for him as every parent wants for their child of course yeah and i know that you will not lay that down you will 
I mean, you've dedicated your life to making sure that this child has everything that he needs. So thinking about that, if you could redo the system to help children like your son, what would you want to do differently? So when I've thought about that for myself and for the other families that I know who are dealing with similar things, one of the biggest things is that despite how hard it can be, they want their children home with them. But the hard thing is like finding affordable housing that could mimic what residential settings look like, but still allow families to exist there and have like home visiting nurses or people who are there as support teams to literally be there or be on call to come help with the physical management if need be. But I think that would give us a sense of community, a sense of security, a sense of belonging and inclusion. You know, those are all the things that help carry us through the hard parts. Yeah. What about ABA? Because you had some big chunks of time of ABA. Did that help? Was that, did that meet any of these, you know, the community or, you know, somebody else being there with you? So I think with ABA, we had our ups and downs. And some of that was just figuring out what kind of programming does Isaiah need? Because Really, nothing is a one-size-fits-all. And I think that's something that providers have to realize, too, is that something that worked in one way for one person doesn't always work for the next. And the programming that we did, I think, was pretty unique and pretty customized to him because there isn't any, there isn't a box already for what he needs. There's not something already designed for what Isaiah needed. And so it wasn't like the traditional, here's a gummy for this task type of ABA that you might have, you know, might be familiar with, but it was more like they did help us understand, help me understand, you know, why he responded in certain ways. It helped me because they came into the home and actually looked at, okay, how do you have things set up? How do you respond when he's asking for or demanding a certain thing? What are things that you can hand him to do and put in his, you know, move the ball to his court and make him responsible or accountable for this versus it being something that's on your plate to do? And then the actual giving him the skills that he needs to do things like how do we break down brushing teeth so that it's not such a chore when you ask him to go do it, you know? So they literally would go step by step, literally breaking down each piece. And so there would be times where like, we didn't actually brush teeth that day, but we got the toothbrush out and that was just the step one. Well, sometimes we all need just, you know, that one baby step, you know? Yes. And I'm thinking about like, in terms of coming into offices, emergency rooms, what can we do to make that experience more welcoming for children on the spectrum. And my guess is it's going to be different for every kid. But if you could design, you know, how that experience goes, what are some words of advice that you would give us? So one thing I know for sure about Isaiah is he doesn't like to wait long. So if we get there and there's like three people in line at check-in, that leaves room for disaster. If he's already like, I don't really want to be here, 
then it can be chaotic. Now, in the particular office he goes to for primary care, he loves to fish. So he usually just goes and looks at the fish and he's like, oh, the fish grew or, you know, something like that. But also like he may just go talk to the front desk people, even if they're in the middle of a conversation. And I think if folks kind of know him and know what's up with him, they'll know like, oh, he's not trying to be rude, but he's just not quite there with the social standards yet of this is how we do this when we come into an office. So if we were able to say, hi, Isaiah, I'm so glad you're here today. Did you check out the fish? I mean, if we knew that and I'm thinking about the wait time, I know if you were going to see me, you probably waited because I'm always running behind. Yeah, I mean, and that is the hard part, right? Like he's got to learn the lesson that sometimes you're going to have to wait for things. And as he's getting older, that's part of what we're working on. But I think as long as people are aware that you're working on it and that working on it isn't always pretty, then they can give you the grace and space to do what you need to do. Yeah. And oh, I'd love uh, that. grace. I got to write that down. Grace and space. It's sort of, you know, you talked about sort of that community, you know, that is the practice of community. Do you feel Mm -hmm. like you belong? Do you feel like people know you? That Mm -hmm. makes it, I mean, don't we all like that? Right. People remember our names and what we're interested Mm -hmm. in and where we went on vacation or somebody else in the family. I mean, we all love that when it's personal and, you know, that would help. Well, the other thing you shared with me, is and I'm so excited thinking about things because I'm always I'm all about change. So you shared with me that you did a special training at the state to be a parent advocate. So what does that mean and what do you want to do with that? I have all kinds of ideas, but what do you want to do with it? <laughs> so the training was the parents partnering for change and it's through the state of Michigan through their parent leadership portion of what they're doing. And their goal was to basically have more parent voices in places that need it, you know, in places and spaces that need it. And so my goal was basically, I do the work already to help Isaiah. I was thinking like, well, how can I help use what I know and build up resources and be a parent voice and bring what I know and my lived experience to the places and spaces that need to know and hear these things and help present ideas and help organizations grow. So the idea is, you know, eventually I'll be able to join a board or an association or two and contribute to bettering things as a parent. One of the things that you and I were talking about, and I think you absolutely ought to pursue and it should be a discussion with our office is creating a focus group of parents who have children with, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, not just autism. And of course, you know, a child with autism is one child with autism. Every child has different features of that. But to be able to inform the office, you know, and to help inform an emergency room about how we can better serve because I can think of things that I think are a good idea, but I might totally miss the mark. Because I don't know, you know, I don't know what a parent knows. And so, yeah, I think that would be a really good thing. I think it sounds amazing. I mean, I've I just in the last training that I did and in meeting people through 
through the work that I've done. I've found that parents like me have been some of the most creative and inventive people and persistent people I've ever met. And they will go to the ends of the earth to advocate for their children. And that in and of itself is worth its weight in gold. Like, Yeah, well, I know actually that you're going to do something with this that could be really important. Have you found that, you know, some of the national organizations like Autism Speaks, have you found that to be a helpful resource? Not necessarily. There have been a couple of like resource pamphlets that I've pulled from them. But other than that, not really when it comes to boots on the ground and actually doing the work. Honestly, the biggest thing they could do, those bigger organizations, I think right now, is like literally put money in the hands of the people who need it. One of the things I had to do at home to try to help make things more secure is get like lock boxes, put another lock on the door and do some of those things. And I think people pay attention to stuff like service dogs and things like that, maybe medical equipment. But I mean, I had to go through and get window locks and like all that kind of stuff. And it was pretty impossible to find like specific grant funds and things like that. Yeah, you had to, you really had to advocate. And, you know, to your credit, you got that. And it was because he was wandering. Mm -hmm. We know that happens with children on the spectrum and it's not safe. And that can be you know, a big issue. And like, where are they going? <laughs> you know, he's a little boy. He was eight years old and he was wandering out of the house. So, I mean, that's, that's like practical stuff. Well, right. I hope that you will really pursue that. And again, I, your voice is so important as are all parent voices, but you're so articulate about the needs and the insights. And I love, because I think it's true that you're very creative. I mean, I think about the things that you're doing with him. You know, I love like the TikTok dance videos, you know, I mean, that's just because you're very tuned into what works for him. So I hope that you will seek out boards and organizations so that you can be a voice. And I can think of a couple. So we'll chat. (laughs) Okay, that sounds great. I'm open to it. I am open to it. I'm at that stage where, you know, I've got a resume ready to go. I've got references and, you know, I'm ready to do the work. Well, listen, in closing, and again, thank you so much. I mean, I just feel so uplifted knowing that there is your energy out there in the world to care about kids, not only your own. I mean, you have a bigger vision than that. Any other final words that you want to leave us with? I appreciate the opportunity to be heard. And I never go in feeling like it's me against the doctor. I definitely take the perspective of medical professionals seriously because we go to them looking for the help. And I do value the relationships and I do want to have relationships with every provider that I have with you know, for my son. And I want to make sure it's a good fit because really the level of intensity and services that he needs, you really become like family. So I hope that folks take that to heart. I think that's really good advice. And again, I appreciate you and, you know, give my love to Isaiah, big hugs. (laughs) And I hope that you find some joy and fun this summer and maybe a bit of a break. I hope so too.
<laughs> yeah. Well, listen, take care and keep advocating. I think that's how change happens is loud voices. So, you know, and finding like-minded voices. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Natasha. Thank you. I love this conversation and really appreciate Natasha being willing to share because this is a hard subject and there's a lot of intricacies in what's happened in her life, her son's life, and how it interfaces with the medical community. So here are my takeaways. Number one, a huge thank you to Natasha for the honest, raw conversations about parenting a child who struggles to meet social expectations. Number two, resources like Nurse Family Partners, Project Find, and Early Intervention Services, Community Mental Health Wraparound and Home-Based Care, ABA, and OT are critical to supporting a child and family when the child has been diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. But more may be needed. Number three, we just have to get better at recognizing children who are on the autism spectrum early. You heard Natasha talk about how long it took for her son to receive that diagnosis, and it delayed his access to services. Listen to a parent's intuition because they are the experts. Number four, beware of overshadowing diagnoses that distract you from really taking a comprehensive hard look at the child standing in front of you and be ready to reassess when, you know, the needs aren't being met and things just aren't working. Number five, check in with parents and caregivers. They may be exhausted and could use your concern and care. You know, just a, hey, how are you doing? Are you getting some rest? Number six, get creative and innovative and continually reassess your services. Are you truly meeting the needs? Can you re-examine your office processes and workflows? How can you use electronic health record reminders to make visits inviting and comfortable? I think this could be a fun challenge. Number seven, partner with other clinicians and departments when there's a lot of cross-usage of services. So, you know, for example, Isaiah would benefit from care coordination so that there's a plan in place when he you know, shows up in the emergency room with a migraine headache. Number eight, our families are gracious, patient, and forgiving. And Lord knows Natasha has given clinicians so much grace. I think about things like all the medication trials, how much time you have to wait to see if it's going to help, if there's a response. Scary and awful side effects. Remember to put yourself in their shoes. Number nine, ask about the joy. Where does the child excel and thrive? For Isaiah, it's TikTok dances, raising butterflies, and drawing Pokemon characters. And you really want to help those strengths really grow and flourish. Number 10, consider creating a focus group that includes parents of children with complex medical and behavioral health conditions. Let them inform the work you do. Again, this could be fun. Number 11, a system redo for Natasha, would offer affordable, safe housing with in-home assistance to build a community of belonging, inclusion, and providing meaningful respite. Number 12, parents of children with special needs want what all parents want, happy, successful children who reach their full potential and dreams. Our job is to partner and listen. I know you all do that every day, but I think it helps from time to hear 
you know, the lived experience of a parent because, you know, the challenges are real, but the delights are too. So find the joy and really partner up with parents to help kids thrive. Take care and again, enjoy some summertime fun and relaxation. And I'll look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.